Well, good morning. You know, I uh, learned something this morning, that this is a church of tremendous grace and mercy. You know how I found that out? We actually sang a song this morning with the lyrics, Rolling Tide. (laughs) We are a church of great mercy and great grace. I'm not sure what the word waft means, but... I did hear someone say earlier we are going to waft it on the rolling tide this fall, so we'll see how that uh, we'll see how that turns out. Hey, I got one applause back there, so that was good. All right, all right, very good, very good. It is so good to be with you. It is so good to be in the Word of God. Please take your Bibles and open them to Nehemiah chapter five, or as we say in modern times, power up your Bible and let's look at Nehemiah chapter five. We've been in this study now for several weeks, and today is a chapter that is, it's a very convicting chapter if we will take time and energy to to deeply dive into the text. If we approach this text just kind of casually, we miss a tremendous amount of of character and, um, and prayer and faith building that we can really integrate into our heads and our hearts. And so I'm going to ask you to be active participants this morning. Uh, Please don't let your mind wander. Let's try to stay focused in the text and see what God does as a result of our time together. So as we're thinking about understanding what's occurring here, I really processed this week, how, how do I relate to what some of the people in this text are experiencing? And as I was doing some some research and some study and some prayer and some reflecting, this image of of oppression came to the surface because we see that in this text. And we'll read it here in just a moment, and I think you'll see it as well. But one of the ways that people seem to get most quickly oppressed in our culture is through debt. It's very, very easy to get overwhelmed by financial debt. Now, I am a Dave Ramsey fan. Some folks are not, but I am. I have practiced um, Financial Peace University principles for several years and am thankful to God to be in a place where hopefully, prayerfully, I can continue to have some opportunities to bless others. And that's ultimately what financial peace is about. It's not about uh, financial peace for my sake. It's about financial peace for the the sake of others. So on his website, he has a list of of the top 10 reasons why people get into debt. Or when they get into debt, why people stay in debt. Now, we're not going to look at all 10 of those this morning. We don't have time. But I do want to look at a few that I think are quite interesting. He says one of the reasons that people stay in debt is because they need to keep up appearances. He says, this is the dreaded keeping up with the Joneses mentality, but little do you know the Joneses have leased a BMW, they're underwater in their mortgage, and they have an unwelcome in their visitor, unwelcome visitor named Sally Mae living in their basement. The Joneses are the most broke people in your neighborhood, and if you're not careful, you might be too, okay, if you follow their example. 
He also says that people are unwilling to sacrifice. And he asked this question, how could you possibly give up eating out three nights a week? Or what would your life look like without cable? You'll never know until you're willing to give something up in order to build a legacy for your future. If you're in a lot of debt, something in your lifestyle has to change. Here's the question to ask yourself, what am I willing to temporarily give up? Now, he has this mantra that's part of his ministry, which is live like nobody else so that you can, you Dave Ramsey fans can complete this sentence, live like nobody else so you can live like nobody else. Yeah. Or better said, give like nobody else. I like that even better. And so we live like nobody else so we can live like nobody else. Again, not for our sakes, but for the sake of generosity to be able to help and bless others. They have no hope. This really helps us understand what's happening in Nehemiah 5. He says, when you're buried under thousands of dollars in debt, it's easy to feel there's no way out. After making minimum payments month after month and seeing little or no headway, sometimes you feel like you'll never see the light at the end of the tunnel. If you can't find a reason to keep up the fight, sooner or later you'll probably just throw in the towel and you'll just resign yourself to, I'm just going to be in debt till the day I die. It's not a good place to be. And finally, he says, they don't know how to get out of debt. People have good intentions. They want to kick debt to the curb, but they don't know how. They've been in debt so long that getting out from $50,000 and credit card bills seems impossible. It isn't. I think Dave Ramsey's been listening to my sermons. All you need is a plan, right? I think he's been tuning in the last couple of weeks. So obviously, Dave Ramsey is speaking about pain here that's caused by financial debt. And that's a topic that we're going to address in part today. But there's something, I think, that's missing from the list. And that is being in situations where you are taken advantage of again and again and again by people who care nothing about how it ends up for you. As long as they can put themselves in an advantage, in an advantageous situation, what difference does it make how it impacts the little guy? As long as I can make a buck, don't really care what happens to you. As Christians, we should think differently. As believers, we should care, and hopefully we do. And if we have the ability to do something about it to help someone out of debt, and I want to broaden the scope here a little bit, not just financial debt, but emotional debt, or spiritual debt, or mental debt, that we borrow so heavily against these things for so long that we're just worn out, we're just exhausted, we're just smashed up against the rocks, the walls of our lives have collapsed. If we can do something about it, then I pray that we will. Not just financially, but spiritually and emotionally and mentally as well. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit later. Two weeks ago, we asked this question, what do I do when the walls of my life collapse? Last Sunday, we processed this question, what do we do as the body of Christ when the walls of someone else's life collapse? 
We've looked at these key themes so far. We've talked about being people who are prayerful, even as we see this in Nehemiah, and being a community of faith that is purposeful and being action-able as we live out our faith in the lives of others. We've talked about making a plan. We've talked about working the plan. Nehemiah did all of these things and more. And he did this in the face of great opposition. When it came to their mission, however, the people of God are bought in. The work continues. The wall reaches half its height, we read in Nehemiah 4.16. These people are prayed up. They're purposeful. Every single person is contributing. They've made a plan. They're working the plan. But there's also something else that is going on behind the scene. All the while, the enemy is just biding his time. And as we're going to see in the text today, in every situation known to humankind, I I, I honestly cannot think of an exception. In every situation known to humankind, there are those who use for their personal advantage the hard work, and the misfortune of others. But God has something else in mind. Let's take a look at the text and see what we discover. Nehemiah 5, beginning at verse 1. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and our daughters are numerous, and in order for us to eat, and stay alive, we have to get grain. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. And still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, Yet we must subject our sons and our daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But we are powerless. Because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So in the previous chapters that we've looked at, we discover those people around the Jews who do not want the wall to be rebuilt. We read about enemies of Judah. Those enemies use threats and they use lies and they use manipulation and intimidation to try to get their way. They're trying to derail God's mission, God's purposes through Nehemiah to rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. However, in this chapter, we're introduced to a new enemy. And sadly, this enemy comes from um, a place that it shouldn't be coming from, a very unlikely source. The enemy that we see here is poverty. And there's a couple of reasons why this poverty occurs. First of all, Judah is cut off from very important trade because they are surrounded by those who are hostile to them. And second, rebuilding and defending the wall involves a tremendous amount of time and tremendous energy and resources. 
And in chapter 4, we read about this high cost, which also opens the door to see this unlikely source of where this poverty is coming from. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. That's a long work day. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and as workers by day. And so he's talking here about farmers, people who live outside the wall, and they've come in to help to restore and to rebuild. But if the farmers are staying in Jerusalem, who's taking care of the farms? And if you're a farmer and you can't farm, well, that's a problem. Ironically, the farmers, that's who's upset here, they're not upset at Nehemiah. The plan that Nehemiah has laid out seems reasonable to them. They're bought into the plan, but they are, they're not at all pleased with their Jewish brothers. And they hold nothing back when they express outrage toward their wealthy brothers who are using this situation to get even richer. The text continues, when I heard their outcry, Nehemiah says, and these charges, I was very angry. The outcry of the people, and again, this is where I go back to what I said earlier, if we just glance over this, we miss, we miss the depths of their despair. This Hebrew construct is paralleled in another passage that I think helps us understand the severity of the emotion that they're feeling here. If we go back to Exodus chapter 14, we read the exact same phrase in Hebrew. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up and there were the Egyptians marching after them. This is just before Moses parts the Red Sea. And they were terrified. And they, what does the text say? They, they cried out to the Lord. It's the same exact phrase that's happening here in Nehemiah chapter 5. They cry out because of this injustice that is occurring. It's a, it's a serious situation. It's a situation that if it's not righted quickly, is going to cost individuals their, their families, possibly their lives, and, and ultimately it could cost the life of the entire community of faith. And I think it helps us understand why Nehemiah responds the way that he does. I was really angry. I was really frustrated. I'm really upset that that we're, we're taking advantage of people when we're supposed to be about the mission of God. Why, why is he angry? What's, what's going on here? Why is he upset with his brothers who are, who are using their wealth to their personal benefit? In chapter 7, or verse 7 rather, we note that these nobles have made loans and that they're charging interest on their brothers and sisters who are sacrificially giving their time and resources to help rebuild the wall. We read, I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. And so I called together a large meeting to deal with them. And I want you to notice Nehemiah's response. The issue is so serious, and we can't see this in our English Bibles. 
But in the Hebrew, he basically files a lawsuit against them. That's how serious this is. That's how much the ante has been, has been upped in this particular game that they're trying to play. They are accused, the text says, but not an accused who stand before a judge. In this case, they're an accused who stands before a great assembly. Those who are suffering under the leadership of the nobles. The interest charges are piling up. And they're causing serious problems. The debt on the farmer's mortgages coupled with their loans to pay tax bills to the Persian Empire, it's, it's great. The interest is so high. We got a people here who are at the end of their rope. And these debt-ridden people are suffering. But it's not just financial suffering. They're building a wall that will ultimately protect those who are taking advantage of them. So they are serving those who are taking advantage of their situation. Things have gotten so bad, they are placing their children into debt slavery, hoping that one day they will be able to purchase them back. It's gotten so bad with some of their daughters that they are literally pawning their daughters off as second wives in order to stay alive. Now think about this. Just, just try for a second to get your head around how bad this situation is. Can any of us in this room imagine going to the pawn shop and saying, uh, hi, I'm here, I'd like to pawn one of my kids. Okay, now be nice, okay, be nice. But we can't get our heads around that, right? I mean, I, I've experienced some trauma in my life, but to actually have to sell a child so that other members of my family and I survive? The text continues, I told the nobles and officials, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles, and now you're selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. And the nobles kept quiet because they knew they could find nothing to say. Anybody in the room ever been caught doing something you're not supposed to do? That's what happens right here. And they have no excuse, nothing to say. They can't defend this. Again, if we quickly read through this text without taking time to process it, we can miss, I just believe it's one of the saddest realities and it just seems to plague the people of God over and over and over again. And it's this, that in the time when God's people should come together, they turn on each other. I just think it's one of the saddest realities in our existence. But Nehemiah doesn't stand for that. He does not accept the injustice of this situation and so he begins to act and preach and teach as a prophet. And he says in verse 9, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? 
And then there's this interesting twist in his leadership testimony. He, he appeals to how he uses his own wealth as a means to a righteous end. He says, I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but, but we got to stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, their vineyards, their olive groves and their houses, and, and also the interest that you're charging them. 1% of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. And we don't know what happens here. We don't know how much time elapses. But I want you to notice their response. We will give it back. And we will not demand anything from them. We will do as you say. And then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and the officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe. Now this is an interesting phrase here. We don't have an equivalency of this in our, our vocabulary today. But at this time, it was quite um, normal to have pockets in the robes. And so if you took like a backpack or a purse and it was full of items and you turned it upside down and started shaking it like this and all the contents fell out and it was empty, that's the imagery that Nehemiah is describing here. I'm shaking out all of the contents of my robes, just making them empty. And this way may God shake out of their house and possessions anyone who does not keep this promise so may such a person be shaken out and emptied. And what's the irony here? May their fate be the same fate that they are meeting out on others right now who are empty and broken. At this, the whole assembly said, Amen. Do you know what the Hebrew word for Amen is? It's Amen. So say that with me. The whole assembly said, Amen. You just spoke Hebrew. And they praised the Lord. And all the people did as they promised. Church, this is an example of when the community of faith decides to row in the same direction. It's when they decide to get on the same page. It's when they decide to understand what's really important. And they choose to live into that with all of their heart. But it doesn't stop here. It just keeps getting better and better. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate food uh, allotted to the governor. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and they took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people but out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. Boy, that should be a phrase that we read probably at the beginning and the end of every day of our lives. Out of reverence for God, I didn't act like that. Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We didn't acquire any land. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. This helps us understand the menu that he describes next. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds 
In spite of all of this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Nehemiah models a powerful truth that we would do so well to own in our hearts, church. And that is that we are not free to do with our wealth as we please. We are only free to do with our wealth as God pleases. And I hope and pray that we we get that and we desire that and we want to be a blessing to people through our wealth. And Nehemiah prays another flash prayer. He's really good at this. We see these prayers, these very short prayers quite often. He says, remember me with favor, my God, for all I have done for these people. And I, I wish I could hear the tone in his voice as he prays this prayer. Is it a sigh? Is he weary? Is this the prayer of a pastor or of a prophet? Is it a combination of both? I think based on what we know about his character and based on his belief in the mission of God, it seems to me that this is a prayer for continuing strength. Lord, give me perseverance as we continue to lead this people into your mission. Give me strength, Father. Give me resolve. Because I know that the inevitable will occur. There will be more obstacles in the path ahead. And as you think about it, isn't that life? Every single one of us are going to have those seasons where things just seem to be going right, but the enemy bides his time. And so this prayer of a a community of faith leader, in our time we would say this prayer of a church leader, is for a people that he dearly loves. And he knows there are obstacles ahead. And so with this text as a backdrop, I want to think out loud with you for just a little bit this morning. And I want us to process a couple of questions together. First, what are some parallels that we find as we reflect on opportunities that are before us to move forward together as a church family? And second, how do we safeguard turning on one another? as we work for the purposes of God. So I want to look at three of the key major players in this story to answer those questions. First of all, let's talk a little bit about the oppressed. I think it's safe to say that most of us in this room can't relate to the depth of despair that these farmers are experiencing. And a lot of us have been in extremely difficult circumstances in our lives, but most of us have never had to sell our children in order to survive. So I, I struggle to relate to the depths of the despair that they're experiencing here. And unless you've experienced a really deep trauma in your life, you probably struggle to relate to it as well. But it doesn't mean that we can't relate at all. I think all of us probably know what it's like when people can help us but don't? Can some of you relate to that? 
Can some of you relate to people trying to take advantage of you? Can any of you relate to that? I remember when I was very, very young, bought my first car, went to the dealership to get the car. We did all the paperwork. We were just getting ready to sign. And I I really was emotionally bought into this car. I was like 21 years old. I, I didn't really know how you were supposed to buy a car. But I got to the time to sign the papers and the finance guy said, oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm so sorry. We made a mistake. And I know this is the price that we told you the monthly payment was going to be, but we actually misfigured and it's going to be a little bit higher. And it was like 30 bucks a month difference, which over the course of several months ends up being about $1,200 difference. Okay. But I was like, oh, okay, no big deal. Why? Because I wanted the car, right? Now, if I'm giving away a car dealer tactic here, I apologize. But if that ever happens to you, don't get emotionally tied to the car, okay? Get up and leave. Because that's an example of how people who want to just make a buck will compromise their integrity and take advantage of you. Your naivety. Your life situation. The difficult spot that you find yourself in. Anybody else ever been there? There's also oppressors that we read about in this passage. And we may think to ourselves, boy, I'm really glad I'm not like those guys. Can you imagine taking advantage of someone like those guys did when we find people in a difficult spot. Sadly, it might be easier to adopt these same attitudes than we might think. I don't often review other sermons. As a matter of fact, I rarely ever review other sermons because I don't ever want to even hint at plagiarism. I believe God calls ministers to be in the text and to pray through the text and to mind the text and preach to His flock what God has put on his heart. But this particular lesson, I did look at a couple of other sermons because Nehemiah chapter 5 is actually a pretty tough passage. A lot of scholars don't really know what to do with this passage because it seems to be out of sorts to the greater narrative of Nehemiah. So I went and consulted some other folks who had preached through this passage just to kind of get an idea of how they had structured it. I came across an individual it was anonymous. The, the sermon wasn't signed, but there were some great questions that this preacher posed as he thought about how easy it is to sometimes fall into the role of the oppressor. And I'm not going to share all of these questions, but just a couple. Have you ever been on a sports team or had a child on a sports team where the coach's child was always the starter while other better players ride the bench? Please don't shout out names. Have you ever known someone who, when their car developed a very serious mechanical problem, took it quickly to the dealership and hoped that they wouldn't catch it so they could trade in and get one that wasn't in that situation? Have you ever seen a situation in your child's school where the child of a parent of influence always seems to get the lead role in the school play? 
Have you ever known someone who tells lies at work, maybe to make a sale or maybe to get a promotion or to get a job that perhaps somebody else deserves more? Have you ever known someone who uses their influence over the leadership of the church to keep things going just the way they like, even though that means it's not best for the church? Whether we've witnessed this, or worse, done it, we can generally relate to the what's-in-it-for-me attitude that we see on display in this passage. However, there is another attitude that is also on display. And this is the attitude of a man of faith, Nehemiah. And I want us to wrap up this morning by contemplating how we might imitate, or better yet, own this type of attitude in our faith and in how we express that faith to others. Nehemiah was a wealthy man spiritually, but what we discover in this passage is that he's also a wealthy man by worldly standards, but he refuses to use his wealth to take advantage of or to manipulate others for personal benefit. Instead, he uses his wealth to bless others. His leadership reveals that wealth is not the issue. Having money is not intrinsically right or wrong. It's how we use it that makes the difference. Would you agree? It's how we use our money that makes the difference. Are we going to use it to bless others or are we going to use it to take advantage of others? Nehemiah has every right to receive a food allowance from the people, but he refuses that food allowance. It's not the only thing that he refuses. But he does this because of the burden that it places on other people. So we see another truth here that's worthy of imitation. Nehemiah doesn't just talk about being a follower of God. He acts like a follower of God. And I think this is his primary motivation for the prayer that he prays in verse 19 when he asks God to remember all the good that he has done for these people, these people that he loves, people who he's on mission with, together fulfilling the mission of God. At the beginning of this lesson, I shared key themes that we have covered so far in Nehemiah, themes that are foundational for rebuilding that which lies in ruins. And I also shared some lessons from Dave Ramsey's perspectives on why people get in debt. I mentioned that there's something missing from his list, however, and that's being in situations where others take advantage again and again and again. People who care nothing about the impact. As long as they make a buck, who cares how it impacts the little guy? I noted that as Christians, we should care. And hopefully we do. And if we can do something about it, we should. And if you're willing to go there as a church, we will. Not just financially, but spiritually and emotionally as well. And this is the beginning of our framework to do just that. Church, we are making a plan. And we are asking all of you to work the plan. So the question before us now is, what's the plan? What's the plan? Well, over the past many months, 
the elders and the staff and our deacons and members of a leadership class that met last semester on Wednesday nights have been ironing out a framework that lays out a plan. A plan that we're going to reveal in part to you today and over the next three Wednesday nights in the chapel and over the next two Sundays as we complete this series. The plan leans heavily on a framework that was created by a fellow believer, a gentleman whose name is Donald Miller. A lot of you will be very familiar with his work. Um, But we're leaning heavily on his framework and his very well-researched story brand approach. The framework resonates extremely well with the hearts of our church leaders, and it provides a mechanism for us to be on the same page and to row in the same direction as we're on mission together. Today I'm just going to share the first parts of the plan because these are parts that resonate highly with Nehemiah chapter 5. But before we do that, i got to ask another question. Why is a framework important? Why do we need a framework? Well, Donald Miller states something in his book that is very simple, but it is also quite profound. And it is this. If you confuse, you lose. If you confuse, you lose. If we as a church don't know where we're going, we keep you in a state of perpetual confusion. And I don't know about you, that just wears me out. Okay? It just wears us out. We're exhausted from just constantly meandering. We're going to make a plan, and we're going to work the plan. Hopefully to alleviate confusion about our purpose, about our mission. But we also don't want to confuse people in our community. We want to let people know that if you come and you're a part of our church family, this is what you can expect here. And we want to try to alleviate as much confusion as possible. Hopefully, prayerfully, you'll understand that more and more as the next few weeks unfold. We want to be a church that helps people find hope and live with purpose. We talked about this a few weeks back as we began this series. But you're going to see these words again and again and again over the next many months, and possibly even over the next many years. We know what that hope is. It is hope in Jesus. We know what that purpose is. It is living a life purposefully for Jesus Christ. And so while other folks may be looking for different types of hope or different types of purpose, we still believe this will resonate and hopefully, prayerfully, ultimately align heads and hearts with the head and heart of Jesus Christ. The story brand approach helps us understand that we as a church have a desired identity transformation for those within our circles of influence. We hope to be able to help people move from being lonely and from feeling isolated, from people who are looking for a place to belong, to being people who are connected, to being people who belong who have a place that they can call their community. 
When we think about these people, it helps us understand, this framework helps us understand them as a a person, a character in a story, someone who is looking for a home, for a place to belong. And what do they want? We know because of the research that we've done and because of what we see happening in our culture over and over and over again, people want a place to belong. They want relationships, isolation and loneliness. It's epidemic in our culture Who is the villain? In every good story, there's always a villain. And we know who the villain is. The villain is doubt. The villain is fear. It is cultural isolation. Church people, we can sometimes be the villain because we're not very welcoming when people come our way. We want to change that. The characters in this story of God here in this place have problems. They have external problems. There is this need for community. There is a need for deeper relationships. There's internal, an internal problem that is going on. There, there's loneliness. There's, there's disconnectedness. Many times in our, our space here in Bryan College Station, there's this transitional component. We all know what it's like to see Aggies come and go, right? But there are other folks who are coming our way as well. Professionals who are coming in, maybe having job changes, folks who are retiring, who are coming back to this area. So we get, we understand the transitional nature of the problems they face. And philosophical. The existential questions that people ask as they live their lives. Can I fit in anywhere? I'm not even sure if I I know that I can. Or questions like, is this it? This is all there is to life. I wake up in the morning. I go to work. I come home. I go to bed. I get up the next day. I do it all over again. Is that it? I'm going to share more details with you over the next two Sundays and over the next three Wednesday nights. And I have to tell you, in all my years in ministry, I have never been more excited about the possibilities to come together as a community of faith to make a profound difference in the lives of so many people. And I hope that as you hear more, that you will be in agreement. And I hope and pray as you hear more that you will be on board. Church, what difference might this make for us? As we are Nehemiah people, at a time when the walls of the lives of so many people around us are collapsing. I just want to close with one example for you to wrestle with as we close our time together today and we look to the next few weeks as we share the entire framework for our church's future. I'm a big fan of things that go viral on the internet. I love to to, uh, YouTube viral videos and and, uh, viral stories and that kind of thing. I'm fascinated by them, how something gets traction and reaches this tipping point, and all of a sudden, one particular incident is shared by tens of thousands and possibly even millions of people. So I came across this story. It went viral at the end of uh, 2018, really kind of took off early 2019, um, but it was about a woman who went through a Starbucks drive-thru. And when she went through, she was really, really agitated. Um, and so she said some things to the barista that she regretted. And so she came back the next day and she had a note that she gave to the barista. And in this note was a $50 bill. 
Uh, and the barista was kind of so taken back by this that he took a picture of it and posted it on the internet and it went really viral. Now it's kind of hard to see, so I'm going to read what the text says. The lady writes, greetings, Starbucks barista. Yesterday at your drive through we had a less than cheerful encounter. At no fault of yours, you were out of carriers and said you couldn't take my empty cup, my trash. I was less than understanding in my manner and I was Kurt, I need to apologize. And listen to this phrase. The thought of leaving a trail of unkindness like that is not the path I want to reflect. Not for you, not for me. You are a young man clearly working hard to build a fortune and you should be commended. Keep your attitude and cheer and hope. Stay hopeful no matter what kind of people cross your path or drive through. Surely God has a blessing in store. You taught this old lady something yesterday about kindness, compassion, and staying humble. I thank you. God bless you today and all your todays. Debbie. Now, I'm not suggesting that we start leaving large sums of money at drive-thrus, okay? But I am suggesting that we learn something from someone else's unfortunate experience. I pray that we will be people who leave a trail of kindness wherever we go. Might people take advantage of that? Undoubtedly. However, might others respond positively to it? And want to know where that kind of kindness comes from. I hope and pray to the answer, the answer to that question is a resounding yes. Come back next week. Come back Wednesday night. I'll tell you the rest of the plan. Okay? We're going to share a song together this morning and I hope you're challenged by these words and encouraged by these words. If you find yourself in the role of the oppressor, just stop it. <laughs> And if you find an opportunity to help the oppressed, do it. Exercise faith like the faith of Nehemiah to the glory and to the honor of God. And I just can't wait to see what happens when we start living into those kind of opportunities. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing.